Hello and welcome to episode 72 of In Squash. I'm your host Jerry Gibson and today we have Alan Thatcher of Squash Mad. Uh, he runs SquashMad.com. Also he's been involved uh, in the game since I can remember uh, way back uh, Way back in the late 80s, I think he was highly involved in several aspects of the game, including uh, promoting uh, the Canary Wharf event, uh, which is more uh, recent. But uh, he was highly involved in uh, many different aspects of, of the game, uh, commentating, promoting, and um, he's got his own initiative now, the Squash uh, World Squash Day, which is on October 12th. And today uh, we talk quite a bit, now that the dust has settled a little bit, but um, Still, I think even today, we're in a bit of uh, uh, the squash community is still in disbelief at what happened at the uh, at the uh, Paris 2024 organizing committee's decision of choosing uh, breakdancing over uh, our sport as a uh, for that for those games, and we talk at length about that, and he has some great uh, insight on uh, how he feels things uh, played out in his uh, what he feels squash needs to do or could have done uh, better. And so we talk a fair bit about that. We also uh, look back uh, at Canary Wharf and some of uh, how uh, Canary Wharf ha has evolved over the years to become one of the uh, the biggest events on the professional tour. That's upcoming in uh, in only a few days now after the World Open in early March, I believe. So we have that to look forward to. Uh, Mohammed El Sherbagi be defending his title there, and we talk about a little bit about the draw and also. Uh, Sam Todd, 15-year-old British under-23 champion, unbelievable. Uh, at that age, we we talk a bit about his uh, his chances in the draw and what what his future holds. And then also, of course, uh, World Squash Day, which is uh, October 12th of this year. What is World Squash Day, and how we can all uh, get involved in that initiative? So, uh, Alan Thatcher on episode 72. Good morning, Alan. Very good morning. Good morning. Uh, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I checked my diary one year ago. We had deep snow on this day. Oh. And here I am today sitting in a pair of shorts on a beautiful spring morning, 15 Brilliant. degrees. Brilliant. You're in uh, London, right? Just outside of London in Kent. In Kent. Well, uh, that just goes to show the weather in uh, the UK isn't that bad compared to uh, <laughs> Chicago or, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm a big fan of global warming. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Dubai. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I've been yes. playing golf uh, all week and squat. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But, uh, well, great. Well, Alan, first of all, it's it's an honor to be speaking to you on the, on the podcast. I've, As I mentioned, I've, I've been a longtime squash player, but... Uh, uh, you've been in the game at, at uh, the highest level and promoting it for as long as I've been around and, uh, you know, really appreciate everything you've done uh, for squash. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously most of what we'll talk about today is the Olympic bid and the uh, Canary Wharf and, and stuff. We can't really get into, uh, or I'd like to get into a little bit more about you. Maybe we can save that for uh, another day. That's very kind, Jerry. Some very kind words. I remember doing the very first live broadcast from Toronto. Yeah, with Jean Delier. Menin Cup. Oh, Sean, uh, oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, Jean Delier. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Some fantastic memories. Some great times in Canada. Yeah, he put out the uh, one of the first. I guess the 
DVD collection back in the day that, that yes. was quite good. We, we did the first live internet broadcast without pictures. So basically, just like this morning, it was a radio show. Okay. <laughs> so that was a tough one. De- describing a squash match on the radio. That was a that was a tough ask. Yeah, I think, I think for most of us, uh, we'd probably uh, you know before the advent of uh, a video and live streaming, we would have been okay mm. with that. Well, absolutely, you had to sort of work on a shorthand kind of delivery yes. to explain to people what was going on. Shot by shot, play by play was tough because the ball is so fast. By the time you've described one shot, you've missed the next five. So. Uh, by the way, is, uh, kind of, uh, Delier Sr. as, uh, as uh, interesting as his son, uh, uh, Sean? <laughs> yes, very much so. Okay, okay. They're an so amazing the apple family. hasn't fallen far from the, the, the tree there. Yeah. Absolutely. All the boys love their squash. And yeah. They are a, a fantastic family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had uh, Sean on the podcast a while back, and uh, it, was, uh, it was an epic uh, uh, conversation. <laughs> Uh, he's a great guy very funny guy very funny well uh why don't we just get started here uh, um uh, absolutely uh, yeah uh we're here today with uh with alan thatcher he's been promoting the game for for as long as i can remember as i as i mentioned uh, he's a squash journalist and founder of uh, squashmat.com also the founder of world squash day initiative which we're going to be getting into and the co-author along with uh, rod gilmore of 555 the untold story behind squash's invincible champion and uh, sports uh, greatest unbeaten run uh alan thatcher again thank you uh, for joining me on in squash jerry my pleasure Great. And um, now, uh, obviously, uh, we, we're going to be talking a little bit about the, uh, the misfortune of the Olympic bid. Uh, now, se- uh, sentiments were ratcheted up there earlier in the week, obviously. But now that the dust uh, has settled, Alan, uh, what are your thoughts uh, now on breakdancing being chosen? I'll, has, uh, I'll very quickly refer you to an article I wrote on Squash Mad back in 2015. Okay. Explaining why Japan chose skateboarding over squash. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the UK and around the world, everybody was up in arms. But when you think about it, this, this was a very simple decision. There's not a huge profile, or squash does not enjoy a huge profile in Japan. But Japan has a fascinating youth culture. You think about fashion, footwear, technology, music, gaming, and you can pull all these strands together via social media, and skateboarding is a big part of that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, you think about sports appealing to a younger generation, um, I know in the UK we have this kind of generational uh, misfortune uh, kind of uh, clashing between the generations when you know people wander down to their local shops they see a gang of kids hanging around with their skateboards and they feel threatened yeah. but basically this is just a, a bunch of kids organizing their own social life they don't need a committee they don't need to book courts they don't need any rules they don't need a federation they just like to hang out and do their own thing mm-hmm. and i think what japan has done is kind of tapped in to that lifestyle and and they're including that in the olympics fast forward four years exactly the same thing is is happening with breakdancing yeah 
Yeah, I think uh, exactly. Uh, I was talking actually to uh, an older gentleman uh, the other day at the squash club, and um, he was, he basically said the same thing. I mean, he can just it, it's a the youth generation of today, the way things are turning out, and um, um, squash. It's trying to find its way in 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 that way. We'll talk about that later, but uh, it's going to be an uphill battle uh, right now, I think. Absolutely. I think what, what's happening is the IOC is moving the goalposts all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. They are the ones who are changing the rules here, and squash is being asked to jump around and change. I think what we have a fantastic sport. That's why I love this game so much. The players have always delivered high-quality athletic entertainment of the highest caliber. Um, squash, the players don't need to do anything. The game does not need to change. We're, we're doing everything right. Yeah. But it's just behind the scenes, the IOC is looking at commercial decisions. Um, they're not making sporting decisions. They're making commercial decisions. Um, certainly things like skateboarding bring along a lot of brands um, that can generate revenue and obviously breakdancing linked to music, video. Well, breakdancing is huge, isn't it? I mean, you've got the the entertainment industry, uh, big, big money there in terms of the music that that gets, you know, that's behind Mm. uh, breakdancing. I mean, it's been around since the 80s and uh, we all know um mm. sort of entertainment wise what it brings to the table now it's mm. sort of a um, glorified uh, gymnastics out there the thing is where you know the, you expect the olympic games to be sport at the purest highest level um and i don't think breakdancing has any kind of sporting federation in place so on that level, it's an extremely odd call for the Olympic Games to make this decision. The Olympic Games is about sport. So it begs the question, where, where did they get their representation from in order to put together, they must have put together a bid. So where, where is this represent, representation coming from? I think uh, people fail to see the kind of invisible <laughs> pressures being put on the IOC by their sponsors. Uh, one of the biggest sponsors are the TV channels in America who sponsor the Olympic Games. They want to see events during which they can sell advertising. Yeah. Now, if Squash came along with a big brand that said, yes, we'll sponsor the venue, uh, we'll, we'll have a big advertising marketing budget so that we pay for advertising during every break during the squash, during the Olympics, I think the IOC would welcome us with open arms. But until that that day happens, we're fighting with our hands tied behind our backs. We are are ticking all the boxes as a pure, wonderful sport with the top players delivering fantastic entertainment. But commercially, we're not ticking all the boxes. No, exactly. Uh yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, um, you probably, I think you did maybe listen to the short uh, interview I had with uh, Nick Hope of the BBC, and he, uh, you know, yes. I thought his, his uh, take on it was very objective, which is something we can get into later. I, I, I think we need more of that inside the squash community somehow, more of an objective look at our, our game in different ways. 
but what he was mentioning is uh, obviously the youth, uh, the, ur- the urban village that they had set up there, and then how squash, although we, um, uh, we were very happy to be involved in the youth games, um, we were set off to the side in this building where basically no one was, where, where, the, where the squash uh, part was hardly visible. So is that something that maybe squash sort of uh, dropped the ball on in terms of not being being able to broker a better uh, venue for the game? Or or is that just the hand that we were dealt and we had nothing, uh, we could do nothing about it? Uh, I mean, you you may not know, you know. I think it highlights the lack of respect shown towards squash by the IOC. And sadly, that's mirrored in health and fitness clubs here in the UK where they've bought up squash clubs, filled the courts with gym machines and new clubs that have been built that have grudgingly included squash courts. You'll find the the courts tucked away at the back by the swimming pool uh, heaters and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a total lack of respect shown to squash by the IOC. So so given, I mean, that shouldn't come as a surprise though, should it? Because, I mean, we've been shown this lack of respect since the 80s when we've been attempting to get into the games and been shown the door every time. So I think that doesn't it beg the question that we need to sort of try to do something more in terms of getting, getting ourselves in uh, uh, poised in the right sort of situation for this, for this event, because we must have seen this coming in term break dancing was there. They had these big crowds squash was in the back corner in the in the yes some room so uh some place where no one was around so i mean obviously we saw we we must have known that that was going to happen anyways leading up to the only one sport was going to get chosen so yeah there are there are several little things happening that i'd like to kind of weave together if i can jerry first of all sure um there are obviously lots of deals being done in the background Um, several years ago, squash had one of the best lobbyists, a guy called Mike Lee, who sadly passed away a few months ago, absolute genius, knew what he was doing. He was working for squash, but sadly he was released. I don't know why that happened, but then squash's bid failed for Japan. Is he the CEO of uh, the PSA? Sorry, Alan, was he the CEO of the PSA for a little bit? No, no, no. No, he had his own lobbying company. Okay, okay. And after being released by Squash, he was snapped up by surfing. And guess what? Surfing got in and we were left out. Mm. I think there was a big mistake by the World Federation in not retaining Mike Lee with his track record. Um, I think that would have been extremely useful. But um, the timing of this announcement by the IOC and, and Paris 2024 really proves that there was so much going on in the background because this, mm. was, this came just three days after the WSF and the PSA jointly announced the Squash Goes Gold campaign which must have cost a significant sum of money to set up. The video was superb. It, yeah, it, it really showed the skills, athleticism of our top athletes. And for Jacques Fontaine, the World Federation president, he's part of the French IOC committee. For this to have gone on behind his back and behind Squash's back 
is absolutely staggering. So Squash was committed to funding a bid that was dead in the water before it started. Yeah. Because the IOC had obviously come to this decision regarding breakdancing. Yeah, yeah. I and guess it's still sort allowed of... Squash to, to spend money we don't have. Hmm. I, guess, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, it, it's sort of um, the analogy you could make maybe is that you, you apply for a job or you, you have several people interviewing for a job, but you already know uh, who's going to get the job. You just need to fill in the quota yes. <laughs> of sports that, that are you know, on the bid, right? Yeah, I, I would go along with that 100%. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's a shame. And, and uh, yeah, it's too bad for us. Do, so where does well, the that... Other, Jerry, if I could Sorry. jump in, the other two things I'd like to weave in yeah. is the introduction of interactive squash the arrival on the scene of these this mm. amazing company from germany yeah uh shaking up committees and federations with a totally new approach to marketing squash um they put on a great show in buenos aires albeit stuck in a corner somewhere Mm-hmm. But I look at the way they are revolutionizing the way in which the sport can sell itself and attract a new kind of audience, a new kind of participation group. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a, a pub in London a few weeks ago for my daughter's birthday, and it was all about interactive darts. Right. Now, darts has, has gone from being a pub game to a massive TV sport here in like the Like the WWF? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a non-sport. It's all choreographed. It's all made up. But still people buy into it because it's great entertainment. But all I I wanted to say was interactive darts was great fun. Mm. These interactive squash games are fantastic fun. I could see every club in the country hosting birthday parties, family fun days, using all those amazing games that interactive squash can produce on the front wall. And they can also add video games, sorry, coaching games for the more serious squash player. Mm-hmm. And I think it changes the whole market. Um, I think squash has been very slow to react to this. And I look forward to probably the prices coming down to installing these, uh, yeah. the interactive games um, I think once the prices come down, you'll see more clubs buying them. And I think you'll see a, a massive change in the way the more commercially minded clubs go about their business. Well, I guess um, it'd, be, yeah, it'd be worth uh, maybe speaking to um, Marcus, I think his name, um, and, and the, the, the guys at Interactive Squash in terms of, you know, what they view as maybe, how, uh, maybe their role in bringing more awareness to the game through their through what they're doing beyond what they've done already and then maybe well, I, I i went up to london to meet marcus a few weeks ago when he pitched at the atp tennis finals in the hotel next door to the o2 arena mm-hmm. um this is the atp innovation summit okay and they they had over a hundred companies pitching um to present their ideas. This was whittled down to a short list of 32 from which 10 were invited to, to make a pitch on the day. Uh, Marcus stood up and showed the tennis community what he'd achieved in squash. He hardly mentioned the word tennis, 
But these guys at the ATP were so knocked out by all his ideas, the, the kind of visual excitement, the visual impact mm. of what he's done with squash. And he won the award. So he's now yeah. talking to some big hitters, big players in the world of tennis on the back of this amazing work he's pioneered in squash. Well, that bodes well for squash. Uh, I mean, mm. you know, uh, particularly if there's some, some sort of collaboration within the, the interactive game, uh, the interactive yes. element itself. Uh, I mean, mm. that could, uh, we could piggyback off of uh, the, uh, the global popularity of tennis in a way, maybe. The thing is, kids now live their life through their mobile phones. Yeah. It's a tough ask as a parent getting your kids to uh, play any sport at all. I can tell you that the UK invested £10 billion pounds in the 2012, sorry, 2012 Olympics in London. Um, but research shows that there are now fewer people playing sport in London after the Games than there were before the Games. Mm. So we're not alone. Squash is not alone. We're, yeah. you know, we, we're now viewed as something of a niche sport. So we have to try harder. You know, we're all fighting for the same market, getting kids to play football or tennis or squash or whatever sport it is. Um, and they're living their lives through their mobile phones. And what are they doing most of the time on their phones? They're playing games. Yeah. So we, we have to embrace technology if we want to reach those children. Hmm. I think uh, this is just, uh, I mean, just part of our discussion here, but I, I think another element to this, uh, maybe one that's, I don't know if it's been overlooked or maybe it's not even really that important, but squash in a lot of ways, like a lot of big sports in America, given mm -hmm. uh, at the LA Olympics has, is a, and in, and in the UK is a serious pathway for juniors towards uh, uh, education uh, at, uh, at the university level through through squash, uh, uh, playing squash uh, for the for Are you those. Talking teams. about the urban squash programs, Jerry. No, I'm, I'm just talking about get, uh, if you're if you're a high level junior squash player, you have the uh -huh. potential of playing uh, for for a university in, in the U.S. or in the U.K. And it's a pathway to not only an education, but uh, yes, uh, and that that's sort of a, maybe it's, it's a more of a traditional uh, outlook at it, but it's still something that uh, I think there's a lot of value. Uh, to, to that as well. Well, the US is obviously light years ahead of us in the, the building of fantastic facilities. But recently in the UK, we've seen universities in Bristol, Birmingham, Nottingham, Newcastle, uh, Roehampton in London, all investing in squash facilities and squash programs so that uh, students can uh, enjoy a top quality education and be involved in a high class squash program as well. Yes, so the UK yeah. is catching up with the States and I think that's wonderful. But I think for us, the big issue is, is a numbers game. You know, Egypt is proving, showing the rest of the world, large numbers of juniors at their big clubs in Cairo and Alexandria and one or two other places. And we're all playing catch up. The Egyptians are dominating every single junior age group, boys and girls, because they, they're flooding those, those age, age groups with numbers. And that's forcing up. The competition yeah. is forcing up the standard at the top. In the yeah. UK, our juniors spend more time on the motorway than they do on a squash court. And that <laughs> is wrong. Yes, yeah. It's unhealthy and it's wrong. Yeah. And well, it's down to the fact we don't have enough numbers.
Well, I think you can see perhaps uh, the beginning of something good, though, in, in the U.S. especially. Uh, mm. From what I gathered, the British Junior Open, they, they were well represented with, with very uh, strong uh, players and also from other countries uh, as well. But uh, yes. it could be the, seed, the seeds may have been planted now in the U.S. with mm. all of the, uh, as you mentioned, the, the new facilities at the schools uh, and the universities uh, and also with the yes. great coaching that they have over there. So mm. hopefully... Uh, things um, bode well in that regard. I think the U.S. Uh, Squash Association is leading the way. I think they've got a very professional setup there under Kevin Klipstein. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing good things. They're about to start work on a new national center in Philadelphia that looks amazing. Yeah. They have clubs like uh, the UVA Center, the Boar's Head Center in, in Charlottesville that hosted the World Masters last year. They're very fortunate that some of the university old boys are very generously donating large sums of money yeah. to building squash centers. And this week... Well, that, we that's the essence of... Uh, that the, I mean, being involved at the, the Ivy League level, you're, you're going to have those, uh, those opportunities, aren't you, to, uh, to have investment. Absolutely. From those types. And this week in Chicago, we're seeing the first million dollar world championship, mm -hmm. the glass court set up in Union Station. Um, I worked at the US Open in Chicago a few years ago when they were talking about hosting the first million dollar tournament. Um, so they've been working towards this goal for the last eight, nine years. And I'm absolutely delighted to see that we are now at that point where the players can share a million dollars in prize money. Absolutely. Shared amongst uh, genders as well, equally. Absolutely. Equality had to come. Um, I'm delighted it's here. The women are being treated with the same respect as the men. It wasn't always the case. I'd like to see tournaments, especially in the junior world, making sure that the trophies are the same size as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've seen a few funny <laughs> posts on social media recently when... Uh, uh, the boys' trophies have been significantly bigger than the girls, but I'm sure that'll come. Well, it's no longer well a case. Uh, maybe it's never been a case, but uh, certainly today, I mean, the, the quality of the women's game is, without question, it, it, I mean, just incredible. Uh, yes. Go in and watch, I mean, I was watching the second round matches last night, and just uh, mm. from round one on, it's a great squash and uh, competitive, highly competitive. Well, I think the women have fully embraced using the lower tin. They're producing a brand of squash that's more dynamic, attacking, entertaining, that is just fantastic stuff. These are great athletes, absolutely fantastic athletes. And unlike tennis, they're playing the best of five games, the same as the men. Yeah. So they absolutely deserve equal prize money. So, Alan, before we move on, um, just, mm. uh, just want to ask you, uh, where does squash go uh, from here for, in terms of the Olympic uh, bid? I think we, we should look internally at growing the game. Um, there are so many good people in the game at club level. Um, we need to embrace a more commercially aware approach to marketing the sport. We need to build the numbers. We, by building the numbers, we will bring in the bigger brands. I can tell you a story about when back in the 80s we had close to 3 million players here in the UK. American Express did a survey among their cardholders 
and they found that 60% of their cardholders played squash. So American Express approached the game of squash. And that's how the first National League was funded. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had big sponsors like the Intercity Rail Company and various others were attracted to squash. Was that the Leaks Leaks League? uh... So that, they, that was a department store in Wales. Right. And yeah. they did a very good job taking the British Open to Cardiff. Right. And so, yeah, we've seen, it was great for Leaks. They sold a lot of merchandise. Um, I'm sure the ticket sales helped them break even, if not make a profit on the whole exercise. It was great marketing by, by essentially a, a small local retail outlet. But they showed the rest of the world how to do it successfully. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, now, Alan, you, you've—I uh, mean, you're obviously you're a squash journalist. You've been in the game for for a long time. I just—I had this question. I often think about it uh, because squash is—we uh, don't have mainstream media sources covering our game and, and speaking to you know, being being critical uh, and objective about it. Do you believe that's an issue in, in squash? Because uh, I mean. It's great to go on squash site and and uh, I mean I think your your what you guys write about Sorry, on your site is squash mad. Sorry, I misheard you there, Jerry. Did squash you say it's great to go squash mad? Sorry. No, no, I'm <laughs> sorry. Squash. I was going to get the squash mad. <laughs> <laughs> You, you, you stopped me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but yeah. In terms of uh, what's out there, um, I guess is there enough objectivity uh, in our game in terms of what what's being reported the way we we uh, sort of know what we see no, that, no that, that's absolutely my view. not yeah we we need more coverage in the mainstream media i'm fortunate that i'm given space by express online the daily express website mm-hmm. um to write about squash um getting stuff in the print media is tough well we've got really rod gilmore tough. too don't we he's uh yes rod, is rod rod um very sensibly took the redundancy option from the Daily Telegraph, but he's still writing for them occasionally. But even with Rod's contacts and skills, he is hardly ever able to get anything in the print edition. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's sad. I've, Rod and I have encountered the same problems during our careers, working with colleagues who, you know, the whole agenda is dominated by football or soccer. As it's known in the States, it dominates the whole agenda. Obviously, you've got rugby, cricket, golf. Um, one or two other sports jump in at various times. But squash is so far down the pecking order, it's a battle to get yeah. anything in the paper. Mm-hmm. James Wilstrup occasionally, uh, not so much lately. I haven't seen uh, much of his stuff, but he, I think it's uh, maybe The Guardian. One it's of It's online. It's not in the print edition. Oh, it's online. Either at yeah. the guardian james writes some wonderful stuff what um concerns he's me a, I look he's at the highly comments. objective i find uh, with his stuff <laughs> he, he's a, he's quite critical uh, of certain elements of the game absolutely james speaks his mind he's a yeah. he's a very forthright <laughs> critic of the game um what saddens me i look at the comments below his articles and there might be six or ten at the most and you look at the next article about football and there could be two thousand responses from the readers right so unless squash fans actually engage with these articles in the mainstream media Mm -hmm. um i can tell you that all of these websites 
they do hip counts every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so they know to, which, yeah, which I, I sports agree more. We've got to get out there and start uh, hitting up those mm. websites as, you know, as uh, lovers of this game. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's start engaging whenever there is something in the Express or the Telegraph or the Guardian or wherever it may be. Um, it's sad to see that squash fans are not piling in, logging in, joining in and leaving their comments. Because the people at the Guardian will be adding up those hits, and well, they'll say, Nicole, "Why are we Nicole bothering? Why are we bothering with squash if nobody's bothering to read it?" Yeah. Well, Nicole Davis. You know, you know Jerry, that's the biggest. That's the to me the biggest issue that we faced is mm. the disconnect between your average club member and the world's top players. Really? Yeah. Now I've always made it a priority when I've been organising the smaller tournaments to stage them in clubs you're educating the club members they have the, this absolute joy of seeing some of the world's top players descending on their clubs for a week producing some amazing entertainment but during the rest of the year those guys they play their same friends week in week out they'll have a great game of squash but they'll walk up to the bar and they'll probably be talking about football or golf they right. don't talk about Mohammed el shabagi james wilstrop they're not talking about Ali Farag or Paul Cole. And that's, that's the big thing that's, you know, we need to sell this game into our own audience as well as to the wider audience outside. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. That that's going to be a challenge going ahead. But uh, mm. like, like you said, I think what we can do is just sort of any, any time we see, for example, I think the Nicole David uh, retirement, that's been getting uh, a bit of uh, yes. a lot of love out there on the uh, in the blogosphere, I guess you could say, in, in the Twitter yes. things. So, I mean, obviously, she has a huge she's a huge name in her homeland and in Asia throughout Asia. So that's yes. contributing to that. But that that's exactly what we need for yeah. our game for for yes. the rest of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Canada had Jonathan Power. Yeah, well, he, he was huge. Uh, he was on TSN a lot, like as a just a guest uh, sit-in guest host on on just random shows. So he, he had that person. In Australia, former world number two, Chris Dittmar, is a sports presenter, TV sports presenter. So we've, you know, we've we've got key people around the world in a position to help. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've I've got a lot of friends in Australia who are working hard to keep the game alive. Um, it's it's a tough call. Australia is facing the same issues as we are in the UK, and I'm I'm sure it's the same in Canada. Yeah, um, it's a battle to keep facilities going. It's a battle to encourage children to take up squash. And uh, there are so many issues that that need addressing. One of them is the the age-old problem of of small clubs being run by volunteer committees um, who simply don't have the time or the vision to compete commercially with other sports. Right. Yeah, there are so many uh, issues, I guess, to to tackle in order to to generate the the type of popularity we need and the type of growth that we need. But um, let's keep, you know, we just keep on trying and seeing... uh, seeing what we can do now I'm, i've been asked to design a new squash club uh for one particular company and 
the whole objective is to keep this club busy all day long from eight in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Right. Now in the UK, most squash clubs, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's the same in Canada, but businesses usually run from nine till five and most squash clubs in the UK are empty from nine to five. Right. The courts are empty. There's nothing happening. Those courts should be used for other activities during the day with moving side walls. You could be very creative and flexible in how you manage the use of those spaces. They could be used for indoor football, basketball, badminton, fitness, mm-hmm. dance, yoga, Zumba, all kinds of things that could bring in a solid footfall into your club throughout the day. Mm. And then in the evenings, those courts revert to full-time use for squash. Back to squash, yeah. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. It's about sharing facilities. And for me, looking at the wider picture, we have a massive issue in the UK with childhood obesity. Um, we now have one in three children reaching the age of 11 showing signs of obesity. And that mm. is a national disgrace. And squash, we know, is the best game for sport. We could be leading the way here in providing some kind of community um, health support. We we know that our game is the best. It's well documented how how well, uh, how healthful uh, squash is. There are lots of smart coaches now who are working with doctors and hospitals, helping stroke patients recover, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. So the other the other great crisis is the midlife issue where people hit 40 and 50 and stop taking any exercise at all. And well, so I think squash, squash is definitely leading the way in that regard. I mean, the, the, the master's squash exactly. that yes. we uh, put on the last, I'd say the last five years have been an overwhelming uh, success, particularly last year in the U.S. That, that was huge. Mm, I'll, I'll jump in and add racquetball to the equation. Racquetball has been the savior of many a squash club here in the UK. Okay. And I wish it had been around 20 years ago when all those women who took up squash in the 80s suddenly hit 50 and they all stopped playing at the same time. And you look around, there were no juniors coming through. We've missed three or four generations since. Mm. And the numbers of women players in the UK is, is almost zero. It's it's a massive, massive problem, massive issue. Well, Robert, I racquetball uh, is so much fun. Yeah, it is. It's it's good fun. It's uh, not as uh, challenging on, on the body, obviously. And mm. Phil, I think the way you play it in the UK, anyways, it, it it there are a lot of similarities. Well, it is quite similar to squash. Uh, you Absolutely. use basically the same yes. sport in America. It's a different story, but it's the same, uh, less taxing on the body type of game. So yes. Um, now, Robert, I'd like to move on. I, I want to talk a bit about uh, Canary Wharf, which is a uh, fast. Jerry, approaching. who's Robert? Oh, sorry, Jerry, who's Robert? So- <laughs> 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 sorry, <laughs> yeah, uh, Alan. Sorry, um, if talk about Canary Wharf. Uh, coming Absolutely. In March. Yep. Uh, yes. You've been famous. Two weeks time. A few weeks time, and uh, it both. Two, uh, two weeks yeah. time. Yep. And, yes. it, and it looks uh, like you've got a great event uh, lined up. Now, you've been uh, in the, uh, involved in that event, I think, since uh, its inception, if I'm not. Absolutely. Afraid. So uh, yes. if, if you wouldn't mind, uh, give us a little bit of a background in terms of uh, how, you, how the game, 
how the event came to uh, fruition and, and uh, what it means to you to see it, see where it is now uh, these days. Well, I was talking to the Canary Wharf Group 16 years ago at the same time as Tim Garner, Peter Nickel, and Angus Kirkland from Eventus were also pitching an idea to them for a tournament. And they said, why don't you guys work together? And so we, we did. We agreed to work together. and We've been working together ever since. And in 16 years, we've managed to create a tournament that stands up uh, very well on the world world scene, I think we have a fantastic venue at the East Winter Garden. Canary Wharf Group have been hugely supportive. This year, we're welcoming a new title sponsor in City Gold Wealth Management. It's absolutely wonderful to see a company that's based in Canary Wharf supporting the tournament. And once again, we've got the world's best players um, producing their magic on the court in front of sellout crowds. The tickets went on sale in October and they sold out every seat every day within two or three weeks. Yeah, it's um, an event that, that the, the players, are really, they, they all really look forward to it. Mm. Well, I think in, any athlete loves playing in front of a full house, knowledgeable, noisy, exuberant crowd. Mm-hmm. And we certainly have a great atmosphere inside the East Winter Garden. We've got seats on three sides and behind the back wall, behind the bleachers, we have some VIP corporate hospitality. So you can have a five-course meal with champagne looking down over the court. In my mind, that's the best view of squash anywhere in the world. Sounds great. And yet, above that, we have a VIP bar where you can pay a little bit extra and you've got your exclusive bar at the top of the building. And again, that fantastic view looking down over the glass court. And uh, it's no wonder that, that squash fans love it. It's like everything comes together. You've got a great venue, great players, great atmosphere, and some fantastic squash. Yeah, a lot of history uh, uh, going back. I was looking at the, the past winners uh, the other day, and uh, mm. unfortunately, uh, Nick Matthew, who's won this at least six times, uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe five yes. or six, uh, he didn't play last year. I guess he, he was still injured at that time. But um, That's right. He was nursing a little twinge ahead of the Commonwealth Games. So right. sadly, Nick wasn't able to make a a farewell appearance but i can tell you he will be appearing at canary wharf uh on finals day this year we've got something special in mind that we'll be releasing in the next week or so okay something special special for him yeah and the tournament okay that's fantastic yeah Yeah. well last year uh uh el shabagi uh ended up winning the event and uh, he's defend, obviously back to defend his title. Yes. Intriguing uh, quarterfinal matchup with his brother, uh, Looms. And then... Very uh, much. Yeah. So, well, also, last year yeah. we had four Egyptians in the semifinals. <clears throat> four Egyptians and, in the semifinals, yes. That's not, that's, uh, that's not unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> and that, Jerry, is the way of the world right now yeah. in... in, in so many tournaments. Well, I mean, we look, look at the World Open, which just happened this week. Um, I mean, you've got Egyptian upsets, like new new guys coming through that have that are pulling off upsets in the first round. Uh, well, that yes, it's incredible. Yeah. Year after year, there is a new wave of juniors entering the professional ranks in mm-hmm. Egypt, 
and looking at their strength all the way down from under 19s down to under 11s, you can just see this conveyor belt rolling on and on. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But speaking of uh, juniors coming through, we've got a uh, 15 year old uh, playing in the, uh, this, this event as well. Sam Todd, the British under 23 yes. champion. Mm. For, at the age I'm of looking, really looking forward to seeing Sam on the glass court against Matthew Castanier, our 2016 champion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be a great experience for Sam. I know a lot of uh, his club mates from Pontefract are coming down. There's sure to be a lot of noise in the venue. You know, the crowd always get behind the underdog and especially the home players. So I think it'll be a wonderful atmosphere because this year we're starting on Sunday right with the uh, PSA changing the tournament structure there's no qualifying tournament anymore so we go sh- straight into the first round on the glass so we've got people's Sunday on March the 10th again every ticket sold out so we're expecting a, a fantastic atmosphere now with, uh, day with, one. Sam, with Sam I mean he uh, having won the British under 23s at that age mm. obviously obviously mature enough to to pull off a, an upset now Matt, matthew Castaner, he's been a top he was a top 10 player in the world so yes. a, t- a tough ask but uh, he's sort of in the twilight of his career so that it does uh, it could be an interesting uh, match if sam uh, doesn't get mm. overwhelmed by the occasion very much so matthew when he won canary wharf that was a great year for him he was he you know he worked really hard to get into the top 10 Looked like he was set to stay there for a while, but sadly he had a few injury problems, mm-hmm. and that's that's always a tragedy when you see guys at the peak of their careers struck down by injury. You know, it happened to Chris Robertson, it happened to Anthony Ricketts. So many players have. Well, Rami Ashur, the big one. <laughs> Rami, of course, the biggest biggest tragedy of all. You know, a yeah. guy arguably the most talented player we've ever seen never never reach i mean for all that he did he did not even i mean he didn't even reach what he even close to what he could have had he were had he been healthy he wasn't even healthy for half the the games that half the tournaments he won well that year he came back and played the world open and beat Mohammed in the final that was just absolutely staggering to have that long out of the game and come back and just win the worlds was astonishing. Um, but yeah, we were talking um, I about think Sam. Any, any, I was looking at the the operation he under underwent as a teenager when they took tissue from his hamstring to repair yeah. an issue in in the knee. I don't think you would see that kind of operation performed in this day and age. No. Um, and that no. was a, a tragic. That's that's tragic. And I guess he's dealing with uh, arthritic issues in his knee, which are mm. which are sort I guess having to deal some somehow connected with uh, with the hamstring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Rami, yeah, I guess probably the most entertaining player we've ever mm. seen. Entertaining, playing with a smile on his face. Yeah. And everybody loved Rami. It was like yeah. when Rami was playing, the tickets would would fly out the door. I remember working in Richmond, Virginia, and, you know, Rami loved being there, and we had this mantra, Rami loves Richmond, and Richmond loves Rami. It was an amazing relationship he had with the crowd. Yeah. And uh, 
that was pretty much the same wherever he went. Now, I know uh, having uh, done a little bit of research for this, Alan, uh, I know your favorite player, uh, it could be still to this day, maybe it's Rami, but had always been uh, Peter Nickel. And um, uh, dating, I mean, I, I was a huge, uh, obviously being Canadian, huge uh, Jonathan Power fan, but all, yes. always, always had a respect for, uh, for Peter's game, a great, great player. And I really liked the way that, you know, after Jonathan had his way with Peter in the mid nineties, Hong Kong open 97, 98, that time he really uh, learned how to play Jonathan and sort of uh, had his way with, with JP for a while there. But what I was going to try to say is um, um, I, I can still remember you and Martin Heath having uh, doing color commentary with, on yes. matches with Jonathan and, and, uh, and Peter and it was so obvious to me at that time, Martin was a huge uh, JP fan. You were yes. a huge Peter fan, and, and it, it was quite <laughs> quite the dynamic having the two of you uh, commentating those matches. Did you see it that way as well? Um, I've always been totally unbiased when I when I yeah. as a writer or or a commentator. You put those feelings aside, but I've always had huge respect for Peter uh, as a player and as a person. Um. I loved the way Jonathan played. I loved the fact that we had this big personality that lit up the court, lit up the game. And again, you could sell tickets when Jonathan Power turned up. It was, and you had that wonderful contrast. I think it's like Borg and McEnroe, yeah. um, Nick Matthew, James Wilstrop, these great rivalries. You have Mohamed El Shabagi and Ali Farag lining up another great rivalry. And I think it's the contrast in styles and temperament that, that set those two apart. Mm -hmm. And it made for a really exciting era in the yeah, game. Yeah. That was great. Uh, they were great times. And then you also had others mm. coming through uh, to challenge them as well, the, the likes of uh, you know, David Palmer. Uh, well, the, the, the matches Palmer between Power. David Palmer and Jonathan Power were really explosive. <laughs> two standout <laughs> yeah. Two or three, well, three stand out in my memory. First, the one, it was either in the States or in Canada where, where they pushed each other from the tee to the side wall and back. Yeah, well, David, uh, David almost put him through the side wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. someone very cleverly produced an animated GIF showing that running nonstop for about five minutes. Yeah. And that was hilarious. Um, in the Broadgate Arena in London, uh, Jonathan played David Palmer in the finals of the World Series. We had that live on Sky TV. I was commentating, sat next to Jonah Barrington in the front left corner, mm. and Jonathan smashed his racket on the floor. He'd I been running out of rackets through the week, and suddenly he realized he'd broken his He's last not. racket. <laughs> yeah. He had to borrow a racket from someone in the crowd. That, that was when he had the really bad hairdo, wasn't it? Yes. He's always had a really bad hairdo. But <laughs> he was relatively, he had, he had a clean cut look back. I played him as a junior <laughs> back uh, when he was, when I yes. played in my age group, but he was much younger. But um, he always sort of clean cut back then. But then uh, once he uh, discovered his uh, you know, precariousness, uh, he went off on his own. <laughs> the, the other match I remember was in the British Open in Birmingham when we were about to do the first live broadcast on Sky TV. Yeah. And I'm glad this didn't go out live because the night before Jonathan played David Palmer 
and ran into his back, absolutely flattened DP. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> could have been a red card offence. He could have been yeah. off the court. Jonathan himself immediately realized what he'd done and started rolling around on the floor, <laughs> right. feigning illness and injury. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, the referee came pure, on. Pure theater. Uh, pure theater. Ambulance crew came on. Yeah. Uh, he was carried off court, sat down, pretended to throw up in a bin by the side of his seat, and then bizarrely wandered over to David Palmer and yeah. pretended to throw up in a bin next to his chair. <laughs> okay. And so we, wow. we, had, we had 10 no, minutes. No, of no footage of this, Alan? No, uh, listen. Well, this was the night before we did the okay. live, live filming. Okay. Yeah. But Sky probably would have would not have been terribly impressed <clears throat> because it would have been a 10 minute gap in, in the broadcast. <laughs> right. right. And then Jonathan went back. Uh, <clears throat> I can't remember who won, whether it was the year David Palmer won the tournament. Right. Okay. But, um, I can't remember who won the match, but uh, yeah, just those incidents stick in the memory more than the results. Hmm. No, I, well, I just um, want to uh, just want to wish you uh, good luck with the, with Canary Wharf coming up. Lots of good memories going back. Thank and you, Jerry. MES, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the looming uh, quarterfinal match with his brother. Yes. Obviously, the Sam Todd uh, scenario there. Mm. I can't believe he's only fifteen, uh, and he's going yes. to be uh, challenged. He he'll have uh, Matthew Castanet, and and of course, all the the others in the draw as well. Now, well, I'm, I'm delighted. I just want to say a big shout out for Simon Rosner. He's um, oh, yeah. been a big supporter of the tournament for years. Coming back this year as number two seed, he is such a nice guy. Absolutely, uh, everybody yes. in squash is is so pleased to see him achieving what. Uh, he has achieved in the past 12 months or so. Well, well uh, I, earlier I referred to you as Robert, and he, he gave me a hard time when I referred to uh, Patter Horn as Patter Born. So he, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he gave me a hard time about that one. Uh, on I can the imagine. <laughs> rookie, rookie mistake. Uh, keep making them. Um, any, anyhow, Robert, I just want uh, – sorry, Alan. Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> joke. That was a joke. Second, second strike, one more and you're out. <laughs> uh, now, I just want to talk a bit about uh, World Squash Day. Um, that's the, uh, what was the genesis of World Squash Day, a day that you've, uh, I think you founded, and what exactly uh, uh, is your vision uh, for this day? It's October 12th uh, yes. this year, yeah? October 12th. Well, Squash Day has its um, <clears throat> genesis in the terrorist attacks on New York in, on 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, more than 30 squash members of New York Athletic Club were killed in the World Trade Center when the Twin Towers collapsed. And among those was a guy called Derek Sword, who was the New York Athletic Club squash champion. He was a mm -hmm. former Scottish junior international alongside Martin Heath and Peter Nichol and some mutual friends, we, we decided to do something to honor him and all those squash players who lost their lives during the, <coughs> excuse me, during the 9-11 attacks and also do something tangible for the game. Mm. Um, amazingly, three months after 9-11, a team from New York flew over to London. We didn't realize at the time what a massive emotional um, accomplishment that was for those guys simply getting on a plane after 9-11 but they brought a team over to London 
we had an eight-man pro tournament alongside a 15-a-side match, London v. New York. Um, the, at the time of 9-11, John Nimick was promoting the US Open in Boston. And, of course, a lot of uh, players were in midair at the time the attack happened. They had their flights diverted to far-flung parts of the northeastern seaboard. And it was, uh, the tournament was rearranged for January. And the day after the final, which Peter Nickel won, he and John White flew back through the night and uh, came to the wonderful Lambs Club, so sadly no longer with us in London, along with Paul Iconic Price and many other. Yeah. Absolutely amazing club. And we had an, a wonderful one-day eight-man pro exhibition tournament. <laughs> alongside a 15-a-side match. We had, the match fee was £100 a head. We all chipped in to the World Trade Center Fund. It was just an amazing atmosphere. We've had, since then, several trips to New York. Um, and we've used World Squash Day to promote the sport on an annual basis ever since. The biggest response was back in 2012 when we held a one-day match uh, a global match between two teams, t Team Squash and Team 2020, and 40,000 people across the planet signed up to play in one match. Wow, okay. And, and we'd love to see a similar kind of response in October this year to, to show the world squash is not dead. We're, we're this amazing sport. We absolutely deserve to be in the Olympics, but it's, it's also yeah. a way in which clubs can open their doors, show their local community what a wonderful sport they have. The big thing with squash is that the private clubs, the only people who come in are squash players. Right. Very few people from outside squash ever come into, into squash clubs. And what I always say to all the clubs and federations, this is your big opportunity once a year every squash club on the planet can work together to em embrace your local community start talking to other youth organizations other sports talk to doctors talk to schools talk to the local hospitals start engaging with your local community and show everybody the amazing health benefits that squash has as well as all the fun that, that we all know and, you know, all the kids that I've coached over the last 30 years, you, I'm, I'm seeing, seeing those same little matchups they had when they were 10 years old. Now they're mm. 30 and 40. They're, they're right. still rivals on court, those same guys yeah. and girls. And it's, it's like a lifetime love affair. When you fall in love with squash, it's, uh, <coughs> it stays with you for the rest of your life. It's in your blood. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, if uh, I guess uh, what we want to try to do is just uh, bring this, uh, get get everyone involved, get everyone in the squash com community involved. I'll, I'm I'm going to be uh, actively involved, uh, promoting it on on the podcast as we go forward. So, so um, what can we do, do? I guess what's your vision in terms of getting people involved and how they can uh, promote World Squash Day uh, at the local level. Well, quietly, we, we were obviously looking to support the Olympic bid, but there's pretty much no point in doing that now, now that we've been excluded. So it's, it's very much an opportunity 
for us to promote all the good things that squash has to offer. Right. The fun and the fitness. Um, There's a way for squash clubs to attract new members. It's a way for squash clubs to involve their local media, whether it's TV station, radio station, local newspapers, invite them down, get them on court, give them some free coaching, hit a ball, get them doing a few court sprints. Um, (laughs) It's not difficult. And I just want to encourage clubs to start embracing their local media more than they are at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's free. You've got Facebook, you've got Twitter, you've got social media, yep. as well as the, the professional media outlets I've just mentioned. And this is a way where we can, we can flood the airwaves for a whole weekend over, over World Squash Day. All right. Well, that's, that's something uh, we can look forward to in October. Everyone get involved and uh, we'll mm-hmm. keep, uh, keep it, uh, sort of keep it out there between now and then and let's see uh, how big, uh, big we can get it going. Thank you, Jerry. Really, really appreciate your support. Alan, you've been, you've been very, very good with your time. And I just want to say uh, over the years, like I said earlier, uh, you've been the face of squash in many ways. Uh, uh, once, especially as it became uh, visible online, you were uh, part of the game as an announcer, as a presenter, as a promoter. And uh, it's been, uh, it's been uh, uh, too long for me not to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much. And uh, let's do it again. Jerry, I look, one day let's get on court as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alan, take care. Great stuff. Thank you, Jerry. Much Cheers. appreciated. Cheers, mate. Well, like I said, it was an honor to, to speak to Alan. He's been a big part of the game uh, for a long time. And uh, I've had a few guests like that, guys that have been... Uh, been out there and been uh, been giving so much to squash uh, over the years guys like uh, you know uh, Alan here Robert Edwards Rob Dinnerman uh, Mike Way Neil Harvey guys guys who have been involved in, in the game for a long time so I really appreciate uh, Alan, uh, Alan coming on and uh, again apologies about the, uh, the slip there uh, uh, Robert I've done that a few times now I went uh, patter uh, Patter Born, not Patter Horn. Uh, Robert, not Alan. Uh, so, you know, I've got to step my game up here, maybe take some, uh, maybe get some notes in front of me to remind me of uh, a few things while I'm speaking. But um, at any rate, really great to chat with him, and thanks uh, to him for taking the time out to speak with us today. Uh, we've got several uh, good ones coming up, uh, so stay tuned for those. Again, as always, appreciate all of you who, who are listening and uh, keep those uh, suggestions and feedback coming on the podcast. I really appreciate that. And uh, enjoy the rest of the World Open. We've got some big matches coming up over the next few days. And then, of course, uh, Canary Wharf uh, shortly thereafter and, and other uh, uh, smaller events which shouldn't go unnoticed because there are so many great young players out there uh, to watch. And then not only uh, the pro game, but uh, our games. Um, I'm really uh, excited. I'm not playing today. I was supposed to play, but I think I'm going to have to uh, put it off till tomorrow. Looking forward to that, though. Feeling fit, feeling strong, and I hope you are. So, uh, again, thanks for listening. Enjoy your squash, and talk to you soon. Goodbye now.